All right. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Jerry Lynn, and I'm going to open with a prayer, and then I'll tell you a little bit about who I am. I'm going to read a prayer. <laughs> so, how difficult it has been, O Creator, for us to be humble and caring. We so easily forget your teachings of the just and right relationships that we are to have with each other as brothers and sisters in this land. We so easily forget that our responsibilities carries from generation to generation for all those who hurt and oppressed and denied their place in the circle of life, those who still need our support, who need justice and peace. How difficult it is for us to remain humble as we walk the road of life. May we find peace so that we might share peace that is genuine and real and help others to know peace within. Spirit of life, help us walk the road of integrity back to the circle of life where we will be truly joined by all our brothers and sisters. Miigwech, Gichi Manitou, amen. So I'd like to start with a land acknowledgement. So I'd like to acknowledge that we are on the traditional territories of Fort William First Nation who are signatories to the Robinson Superior Treaty of 1850. And as an Indigenous person, I think it's really important to acknowledge the land on which we work, live, um, and play. And also acknowledge that I am also a guest on this territory. Um, my family comes from Treaty 8. Um, and my community, my family's community, is Big Stone Cree Nation. Um, sorry, I lost my clicker. <laughs> Did I forget over there? Sorry, this is the first time um, <laughs> I'm ever speaking at church, and I was joking with my friend, and she told me not to say it, but I'm going to say it anyway. I'm like, I'm a teacher, not a preacher. <laughs> so, <laughs> so bear with me as uh, I go through this. Um, so as we begin, I wanted to start off by showing you um, a short video called Zuya, um, The Journey. White Owl Woman. My English given name is Ariel Waskwich Crawler. Everyone calls me tiny. I was raised on the Kiskawapdan First Nation, also known as the Bighorn Reservation. I am the granddaughter of Fred and Angeline Waskwich and Rosie Crawler, and I am the daughter of Glenn Waskwich and Mary Crawler. And I am also a mother to my daughter, Nakota Najoni Rose. <coughs> I am the youngest out of six. I have four brothers and one sister. 
and I am of Nakota Sioux in Plains Creed descent. I come from a small community, and I can remember my first school only had two classrooms in it. But as for myself, I've never finished high school because at a young age I dropped out to help my mom and my dad raise my niece and my nephew who were a year old and six months at the time. I went through a stage in life where I fell into depression and feeling like I wasn't enough. I almost committed suicide. I felt like a failure because I never finished high school. I was lost. But because of the challenges I faced when I was younger, it made me who I am today. I feel like we are walking in two worlds. One being our cultural side, the hunting, the beating, and the sewing, making dry meat. And then there's the other, the other world, the Wasiju world, where there's cars, buildings, and just a bunch of chaos. At first, I had a, a hard time trying to find the balance between these two worlds and where I just left one world to go down the other. I am a woman's northern traditional dancer. It brings me back to my culture. It reminds me of where I come from and not to forget it. To dance. One more second and then Thanks. I'll hey oh hey oh hey oh hey oh hey oh Wakan gifted me with friends and new experiences that left an impact on my life. One of those being the opportunity to go to New York and attend the United Nations 16th Forum on Indigenous Issues. And the reason why I am saying we are walking in two worlds is because I experienced that while I was in New York. I actually started to see that I was in a whole different world than what I am used to. I went through a culture shock, but just being there was an incredible feeling. And who I am today and who I try to be is someone who I needed or who I should have had when I was younger. To my dear relatives and loved ones striving to walk the red road, the Chunkululuta, even if only for a day, week, month, a year, or maybe even years, I support you, and my heart is always with you. I know it is hard, times are hard, but I want you to take strength and do well as much as possible. You can do it. I want you to know I love you and I will always sing and pray alongside you. Each step you take strengthens your spirit. Nothing is impossible. You're done. Hey, oh, hey, hey, oh, hey, hey, oh.
Okay, can you hear me? Okay, cool. <laughs> um, so I wanted to start off with Ariel's uh, story. I had the uh, great pleasure of meeting her just this past May when I took some indigenous leader, um, leadership development. Um, and she has a pretty inspiring story, looking at where she came from to where she is today. She is also known as a water carrier um, for her community. Um, so her job is to make sure that she gets the message out, you know, that water is sacred, water is life, and each one of us on this earth need it to survive. And I also wanted to start with, the, with her story because um, I want to try and connect with people's hearts and not only minds, because I think that's important in order for us to figure out how to make change and move forward together in a good way. So I have a quote by one of my, or one of my favorite quotes that maybe some of you have heard. And this is by um, an indigenous author named Richard Wagamese who passed away in 2017. And this is what he says. All that we are a story, from the moment we are born to the time we continue on the spirit journey, we are involved in the creation of the story of our time here. It is what we arrive with. It is all we leave behind. We are not the things we accumulate. We are not the things we deem important. We are story, all of us. What comes to matter then is the creation of the best possible story we can while we're here. You, me, us, together. When we can do that and we take the time to share those stories with each other, we get bigger inside, we see each other, we recognize our kinship, we change the world one story at a time. And I know for myself, listening to other people's stories has helped um, inspire me and change me and to lead me to where I am today. So I hope that um, what we talk about today, or I guess what I talk at you about today, <laughs> will inspire some change and learning. So um, I'm going to share my story. So uh, my name is Jerry Lynn. <laughs> I've said earlier, um, and I work at Lakehead University, and I'm, I'm the coordinator of the Native Access Program, which is a transition year program for Indigenous students who might not otherwise have the opportunity to go to university. And for me, this is um, my purpose um, and my life, and it all goes back to my own story of growing up. So in these pictures here, see if I can figure this out. Oh, this is this is my mama. Um, that's me and my sister when we were little. And these are my great-great-grandparents, and this is my kokum, or my mom's mother. Um, she, my mom is a very, or is, um, she passed away 10 years ago, important person in my life, and a lot of the work that I do is dedicated to her. So my mom was a residential school survivor, so we grew up kind of in a crazy um, household. My dad wasn't really around. We've seen him maybe two times a year, but we did talk to him on the phone every Sunday. Um, so my mom was left to raise us, and she, didn't, she did the best she could with what she got. She um, numbed her pain by drinking, and for us, it didn't work out so well. So we ended up growing up in foster care for parts of our lives. And I'm not telling this to you guys because I don't want anybody uh, to feel sorry for me. I want you to understand where I'm coming from and where um, many other intergenerational survivors are coming from and where we can go from here. Um, I learned a lot of lessons in foster care. Um, I, I remember a couple places vividly where we were bounced around and the people weren't kind and um, just trying to figure out where I fit in this world and do I belong and, and you know, what's my purpose and why is this happening to me and why can't my mom take care of me? And then I started, um, my, one of my aunties took us in as we were growing up and it was my mom's youngest sister, so there's seven of them and she didn't go to residential school. She was um, the only one out of the seven who didn't go. So she, um, she was a Christian. 
And her name was Esther, Auntie Esther and Uncle Tim. And I contribute to my faith and what I understand about God um, to them and to seeing what a real family is like. Um, I didn't grow up knowing God, like I've heard of God, but I didn't know what it meant to be a Christian and where to, what, how do you live your life that way. Um, so I remember uh, when my mom was healthy, I went home for a while after I had been living with my aunt and uncle. And after going home, um, you know, I had become a Christian when I was 12 and I didn't know what it meant. I just knew that she was talking about God and that she asked me if I wanted to ask God into my heart and I was like, okay, let's do this. And then it was kind of time for me to leave and I didn't know what it meant going home. So I still did the things, like whatever a 12-year-old does um, at that time. I, you know, I, I was being a kid and then I grew up and then I started getting into partying and all of that stuff. And I still didn't know what it meant. I had another opportunity to move in with them when I was um, 14. And I really got to see what it meant, what it was like to be in a family that loved God, that loved people, that loved each other. And um, it was an example of what a non-broken home looked like. And that's what I strived um, to be and do. And I really did at that point feel like I was walking between two worlds. Um, I forgot to mention that my mom never, my mom spoke Cree until she was seven. It was her first language. And then growing up, um, she never taught us it because of the residential school experience that she had. Um, so I was trying to learn how to walk in these two worlds. How do you be a Christian and practice your culture and be indigenous? Um, and, and can you even do these two things together? And that was my um, big question. So then I started trying to understand my history. Uh, this is a picture that you can just find online, but it's a picture of um, indigenous children in residential schools. So for a long time, um, even probably until I started coming to grassroots, I didn't really take my, my faith seriously. And I probably, I think I've been here four years now, I wanna say about four years. And I had this big struggle trying to put together how, how do you be a Christian and how do you be indigenous? Because the church is what told my people that we weren't good enough and that we were savages and that we didn't deserve um, to live the lives that we had been living before contact. And, and, in, and I'll be honest, sometimes to this day I still struggle with the idea of Christianity and being indigenous. Um, because I guess part of growing up was when I wasn't with my aunt, I was going to this church that seemed kind of legalistic and I wasn't allowed to do this and that. And, and then I found some, um, some indigenous Christian friends and, and I even still talk to them today. <laughs> I'm trying to put my mind around this. And my whole goal is to live the good life, which is in Cree, mino pamatis suin, so how living the good life, walking the good road, and um, trying to figure out how I fit on this place and, I, and I'm doing what the Creator wants me to do. And I honestly believe that coming to grassroots was uh, the path that I was given by the Creator. Um, I mean, I've learned how to do, I've, I've learned to understand um, a lot of things about church from people like Carolyn and Sheila um, and trying to understand how do we put these together. And I think one of the biggest draws to Christianity for me was the whole aspect of love. I wasn't really taught that part of it until, I, or understood it, I guess, until I came here. It's all about love, loving people, loving each other, um, and loving God. And forgetting all the legalistic, the legalistic ways um, that I was taught and trying to move to forward and show other Indigenous people that this could be um, you know, a path for them but also understanding that our culture is still important and we can still practice it. And I know, and I've talked to people who don't agree with that and, and that's okay. I just know that I have to do what's, um, what I feel like I'm being led to do. 
So that's just a little bit about who I am. Um, oh, here's the slide I was supposed to be on. Reconciling with myself. <laughs> um, so working on coming to terms with my beliefs, um, forgiving and moving forward. So forgiving and understanding that um, it wasn't God or Jesus who did this to my people. It was people who interpreted what God had to say in not a good way um, and used it for their own benefits, for power and control. So it was learning how to go back to the roots and understanding my story and trying to put two and two together. And I really like this quote by Brene Brown. Um, Shame is the most powerful master emotion. It's fear that we're not good enough. And I still struggle with this sometimes. I'd be lying if I said I, I'm, I'm good at this. But trying to figure out that who I am and what I do and what I believe, um, you know, is good enough and that each day that I'll be changed um, to the way that and the path that I'm supposed to go on. And I was reading an article a while back um, by Dwayne Donald and he talked about being the colonized and the colonizer. And to me, so I, I am both, so my father is non-indigenous, so I really feel like at times I'm walking in both worlds trying to, trying to recognize and honor who my Cree family is and also honor um, my settler family and make sure I'm doing right. Um, know, to bring the two together in a good way. And it's been um, an interesting journey and it's not easy and sometimes it makes me um, question my identity. Uh, and I know that I'm not the only one who feels this way. I've talked to other people um, in my peer group that also struggle with this sometimes. So reconciling with ourselves is really important. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that at the end. Um, so what is reconciliation? So according to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, reconciliation is about establishing and maintaining a mutually respectful relationship between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal peoples in this country. In order for that to happen, there has to be awareness of the past, an acknowledgement of the harm that has been inflicted, atonement for causes, and action to change behavior. And I believe um, as a church and as individuals that we have a great task ahead of us, that we all need to be working on this together. Um, we all know and understand um, what Thunder Bay is about and what's been going on here um, with the racism. And I think, um, I think we all have a job and a, and a role to play in this path towards reconciliation. And it's not going to be easy. And a big part of this is understanding our history. So I'm just going to quickly go through um, a short timeline of events. And I found this uh, verse in Zechariah 8.16 that says, These are the things you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gauge judgments that are true and make for peace. So as followers of Christ, I believe that each of us um, has the job to speak the truth um, about the untruths. So I think that we have to understand our collective history. Over the past 500 years, um, Indigenous communities have been traumatized by multiple deaths from diseases, so smallpox and tuberculosis. Um, smallpox was actually um, done on purpose. So Lord Jeffrey Amherst, who was working in the military, gave out blankets that were infected with the smallpox disease to annihilate um, Indigenous peoples. And, and it's a pretty sad and traumatic history, but I think it's important that we understand it. Um, we've been expelled, expelled from our homelands, treaties aren't being honored, land has been expropriated, um, and relocation to reserves, um, places that are unfamiliar, um, or were unfamiliar at the time to Indigenous peoples. Loss of economic and self-sufficiency, such as hunting, fishing, trapping, foraging, 
farming, and high unemployment rates to this day on First Nations. So removal of children from their homes, the Indian Residential School, the 60 Scoop Foster Care, and today um, they're calling it the Millennial Scoop for Indigenous people, where um, at this time in history, there's the highest apprehension of Indigenous um, children from their homes, and I believe that the highest is in Manitoba right now. And why is that? Also, the assimilation tactics, so things like the Gradual Civilization Act, the Indian Act, and the White Paper, so um, policies that were implemented by our own Canadian government to try and assimilate and um, get rid of Indigenous people. Duncan Campbell Scott was an Indian Affairs agent, and he said that basically we need to get rid of the Indian problem. Uh, so historic experiences of trauma were compounded by the loss of cer ceremonial freedom, dance, song, and other methods that would have helped Indigenous peoples express and grieve their losses. So that kind of goes back to what Ariel said in the film that I showed you in the beginning, that you know, dancing is healing and healing is dancing. It's a way for Indigenous peoples to connect to their culture and to the earth um, and to remember who they are. And for Indigenous people, the drum is, represents the heartbeat of the nation. And I know every time I hear the drum, it just makes me feel proud and, um, yeah, I, I like it. <laughs> so what was the outcome of this 500 years of history? By and large, the procedure was successful, although the legacy of damaged minds and crippled souls it left in its wake is yet untold. Psychic numbing, post-traumatic stress disorder or syndrome, battered wife syndrome, suicide, alcoholism, inui, are there any names for psychicide? So, if you look at it, the colonial project did work for indigenous people. Many of us don't know um, our histories, our cultures, but there is a resurgence and you'll see that even around Thunder Bay, you can see language nests being um, happening and also different cultural events are on the rise and they're more visible for everybody to attend and be part of. And as I mentioned, it's really important to look back in order to move forward, because if we don't understand where we're coming from, how do we take steps to move forward? So historic trauma causes deep breakdowns in social functioning that may last for many years, decades, and even generations. And some of you might have heard this term, I did mention a little earlier, is intergenerational trauma. And that's the legacy that residential schools has left for indigenous people, um, trying to fight for who they are and where they belong in the society. And this, is, this quote is by uh, Dr. Gabor Matei in his book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. And he says, we create meanings from our unconscious interpretation of early events, and then we forge our present experiences from the meaning we've created. Unwittingly, we write the story of our future from narratives based on the past. So we have to change the narratives. Even in my own family, I still have um, relatives that are struggling with alcoholism and addiction and trying to move forward in a good way. And I think acknowledging our, our past, um, bringing culture back into um, where it used to be and respecting that culture for Indigenous people, I think will help with the healing process. And I just wanted to talk a little bit about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada. Um, so this was part of the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement, which was the largest class action settlement in Canadian history. It be began implementation in 2007, and one element of this was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, and it was to fac facilitate reconciliation among former students, their families, their communities, and all Canadians. So they spent six years traveling to various um, communities across Canada. 
They heard from 6,500 witnesses, and they hosted seven national events across Canada to engage the public, educate people about the history and legacy of the Indian residential schools, and to honor the experiences of the former students and their families. Upon the completion of the TRC, or the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, they released a report in 2015 called the 94 Calls to Action. So these are calls to action that um, came from all the feedback that they got um, from visiting the communities and talking to, to the people. So there, these are 94 ways that Canada and all parties to the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement could act to redress the legacy of residential schools and advance the process of Canadian reconciliation. And they're further broken down into 22 categories under the broader heading of legacy, which are calls 1 to 42, and reconciliation calls 43 to 94. And the legacy actions involve ways that damages due to residential schools system can and experience can be redressed and include the subcategories of child welfare, health, and justice. And then the reconciliation calls to action speak to ways that all Canadians and Indigenous people can be reconciled for a better future together and may include subcategories that include the legal system, youth programs, commemorations, business, and churches. So there are calls to action for churches. <laughs> um, there's six of them um, specifically. So calls to action 48 and 49 um, are the settlement agreement parties and the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Um, that is a worldwide declaration to protect and honor Indigenous people. And then calls to action 58 to 61 are church apologies and reconciliation. So I'm just gonna read number 49, um, which says, we call upon all religious denominations and faith groups who have not already done so to repudiate, I probably said that wrong, sorry, concepts used to justify European sovereignty over indigenous lands and peoples, such as the doctrine of discovery and terra nullius, which means land belonging to no one. Um, when, so we know that indigenous people have been here for a very long time preceding um, contact. So reconciliation is critical, complex, multifaceted, and continuous. It's learning about indigenous history, recognizing the intergenerational impacts of colonization, attempts at assimilation, and cultural genocide. It's recognizing the critical roles that indigenous people have held in the creation of this country, their contributions to the world wars to protect Canada. It's respect for indigenous individuals, Indigenous beliefs, cultures, traditions, worldviews, challenges, and goals. It's recognition and support of the deep connections Indigenous peoples have to this land. It's supporting the, re the reclamation of identity, language, culture, and nationhood. It's healing for all Canadians so we can create understanding and so the stereotypes can stop. It's building relationships. It's never giving up despite setbacks. It's humility. It's an opportunity to move forward in a good way, and it's a commitment to taking a role and assuming responsibility in working towards a better future for every Canadian. So reconciliation, I believe, is really important um, for each and every one of us to live in this world and walk together um, peacefully and happily and to share our cultures and our beliefs. And this is what reconciliation is not. It is not a trend. It's not a single gesture, gesture action, or statement a box that can be ticked. It's not about blame or guilt. 
It's about the loss of rights for non-Indigenous Canadians and someone else's responsibility. It's everybody's responsibility. And I've talked to, to some people who also don't believe in reconciliation, and, and that's okay. Um, this is something I've had to wrestle with, and I believe that, um, so Justice Marie Sinclair, who was the commissioner, commissioner of the Truth and Reconciliation, said it took us 500 years to get into this mess. It's gonna at least take that long to get out of it. And I think if each of us play a part, um, you know, that we can get there. And I always have hope uh, that if you're willing to listen and to learn, um, that, that this world will be a better place. So I found this uh, verse from Romans 5.10. For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So we know that the Bible tells us that Jesus is the ultimate reconciler. So if we're living our lives for him and following his ways, um, then it's our, I believe it's our duty to try and reconcile with our neighbors. Um, and it can be sm as small as going to different events in our communities and talking to each other about these things. And I just put this picture up here because I just thought it was beautiful. I love indigenous art. All right, so this is from the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People, um, which was released in 1996, and it was another commission that was put together to study um, residential schools, uh, the 60s scoop, and among other things. And they also talked about how we needed to have more education between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples. And this is a statement that they said about churches. Of all the non-governmental institutions in Canadian society, religious institutions have perhaps the greatest potential to foster awareness and understanding between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. And I believe that to be true. Um, even though as a church, as a grassroots, we weren't involved in, um, in residential schools, many Indigenous people still look at whatever church it is as um, a place can't think of the word, but as not a welcoming and warm place. And I, and I have aunties that even, so my Christian auntie and my traditional auntie are always arguing because she's saying like, how can you, how can you go to church and how can you go believe in somebody who did this to our people, right? Um, but my auntie knows that it's much bigger than, than just that. It's like I said about love and that's where I, I, I learned a lot of that from you guys and from her. And then in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, it says, all of you are Christ's body and each one is a part, for, part of it. So no matter um, what direction we come in, whatever color our skin is, uh, we all belong to God. And it's really important to remember that, that just because somebody might look different than us, that we should welcome them and love them and um, put our best foot forward. And it kind of reminds me of uh, what you were speaking about. I don't know if it was, um, was it last Sunday or the Sunday before? <laughs> about... Um, you know, kind of in a nutshell, just being there and honoring people and respecting them. And even if we don't like them, you know, we need to, we need to show them respect and love, even when it's not easy. And my hope is that here at Grassroots that we can change the story together to learn uh, more about our history and figure out how we can, in a way, I guess, indigenize and decolonize um, the church to, to reflect the nations and the lands that we're on today. So here's some really practical things about what you can do. Um, so reconciliation begins with yourself. I truly believe this. In order for us to reconcile with anybody else, we have to take a look 
inside of us and we have to ask ourselves, why do we hold these beliefs and these thoughts? Why do we think this way about another person who looks different than us? And once we can honestly answer those questions, um, then I think that we can move outside of ourselves to reconcile with other others. Um, I think you can, if you go online, you can read the 94 calls to action. You just gotta Google it, it'll come up. Has anybody read it? Awesome, yay, right on. So it's easily accessible for anybody else who might wanna check it out. <laughs> um, you can also adopt a call to action personally or as a church um, with a youth group or uh, other groups that might be in, interested and involved in learning more about this. And you can also check out 150 ways um, or 150 acts of reconciliation, which was created for the 150th uh, anniversary of Canada. So it's a really great list um, and talks a little bit about things like you know, speaking to an Indigenous person, reading an Indigenous author, um, knowing what treaty and territory you live on. Um, yeah, so these are just some ideas about what you can do. And for myself personally, I'm always reconciling things and trying to understand myself and why I think the way I do. And, and I'm, I think for a while, I, I can be honest and say that I'll probably struggle with faith um, and my culture and trying to figure out how this works. But I can say that being here has been really helpful and having friends to talk to and help me see that um, God is more than, than legalism and that he really cares and loves for us and that if we follow the road, we can live a good life and that I can still practice my culture and it can still be a part of who I am moving forward. So with that, I just wanna say Chi Miigwech and I'm gonna close with this video. What is an Indian? During a normal working day, I answered many questions from non-Indians concerning Indians. The questions vary, and in some cases, poorly stated, but usually add up to one question. What is an Indian? They say he is a person who doesn't work, but gets a monthly check from the government. Others say that he is lazy. Still others say he's a man who got a raw deal from the government. Therefore, he deserves what he can get from the government. Also others say that he is a drunkard, will never amount to anything. So therefore, the government should terminate him and let him make his own way in the white man's society. Myself, I do not see an Indian in the same light as any of these people. I see the Indian as a group of people, all different in their ways, but held together by a common bond called culture. I see the Indian as a group who fought for what was rightfully theirs and branded as savages. I see the Indians as a group who fought courageously against overwhelming odds and after giving in and signing a peace treaty, lived to see the treaties 
broken one by one. I see the Indians as a individual who, when their country was in danger, went to the front voluntarily and gave their last full measure of devotion, not only in the Civil War, but World War I, World War II, the Korean conflict, and Vietnam. I see the Indian as a group of people who are proud and rightfully so, because they possess the secrets of life the white man has never discovered. I see the Indians as a group of people because even in their broken English, they will tell you how important it is to gain an education in this modern world. I see the Indians as people who, when they cross the culture barrier into the dominant society, become the best in their chosen profession, whether it be law, medicine, politics, trader, athletes, or fighting for freedom. And when I think of the Indian in this light, I think of the question, what is an Indian? My chest suddenly expands and I think I am an Indian. Oh!